0: That's what happens. You offer us money for free, we'll take as much as we can when it comes to repaying it back and then you go and make it expensive.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's not
0: it's, fair, right? We're just funnable ordinary people.
1: Mark, hi, good morning.
0: Good morning, Tim. It's kind of enough of the public holidays. Okay. <laughs> I'm almost eager to get back to work. Okay. April, well, you had to kind of like spin a coin every morning to decide whether it was a public holiday or not. I can't imagine the
1: effect that's having on our economy. Good morning to you from the Cape. Well, I I have a different perspective on the public holidays. I like them. I want more. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, everybody. My name is Tim Cohen. I'm the editor of Business Maverick. I'm talking as usual as we do once a week to Mark Barnes. He's an investment banker. We talk about the week in the news and try and provide some sort of insight, if you can call it that. Right. So, Mark, Yesterday was Workers' Day, and you didn't work. Yeah. Why is that not a contradiction in terms? Well, you know,
0: I watched the, you know, the president addressing the unity of the alliance and things of that nature. But Workers' Day kind of has got a bit of a hollow ring to it when you know, 70% of our youth between 15 and 24 don't go to
1: work ever. And can't go to work and, and would like to go to work. I mean, it's just sort of like the, such a bizarre situation, yeah. Yeah, we've got an inverse Workers' Day. <laughs> Do you think there should be a business day
0: <laughs> for the for the people who haven't got jobs? I don't think they take they'd find that as funny as we might. Yeah, you know, I just think it is. It's almost a reminder of the absence of the solution to that problem and how we keep restating the three curses: you know, unemployment, poverty, and inequality. But we never seem to state the proposal that's going to solve it. Anyway, I kind of watched the Workers' Day gatherings, and felt a little bit sad about the state
1: that we're in. Yeah, as we do. Right, but we are back at work today, and as soon as we get back to work and look at our computers, what do we see? Another American bank has gone fut. This is First Republic Bank. It's just been taken over by J.P. Morgan. This is clearly an emergency rescue deal. I mean, it's the, what, 17th largest American bank. Give me your opinion on this, right? Has the Fed gone too far with interest rate increases, and now it's actually harming the banking sector? Do you think that they've overcooked the turkey or the goose or whatever it is, and that this is now likely to mean that they will reverse course because they've actually broken something now? So clearly, you know, they've done their job. The Fed's meant to be the force that calms the pendulum, not the force that creates it.
0: Okay. Yes. And so we've we, we've kind of lost our way, but yeah, yes, yes. The real issue, the real issue is that the consequence of these smaller, albeit large, banks failing is that all banks are going to look to shore up their balance sheets, to retain their depositors, and to make sure that they in fact survive. That means that they're all going to re-examine the credit that they extended in easier interest rate times. And they're going to find that that credit needs to be provided against quite a lot more than they have now, which is going to be the litmus test for whether you were sensible during the easy times or not. And so that could precipitate even further bank issues to be dealt with. But what it could also more importantly precipitate is a restriction of credit in a high interest rate environment. And so I think Yes, I think the punishment was severe, but the real culprit was the initial easing. The real culprit was, let's give everyone some sweeties. Now we've got to take the medicine, it's not so good, and some people have already gone past the cure. So I blame the easing, the quantitative easing is the cause of all of this, not the interest rate increases. And so, yeah, I do expect those will taper off, if not come to a standstill now. We're just paying the price, Tim, for easy money. Yeah, There is no such thing as easy money, man.
1: Yeah. I was looking at some research which showed that one of the weird things about the Fed is that it doesn't anticipate fast enough the likelihood of a economic downturn. And once the economic downturn happens, it doesn't anticipate fast enough the need to stop interest rate increases or to at least put them on hold. I think it's a natural thing. You just You want to make sure that the the situation is now normalized, so you tend to overshoot. You know, you don't want to be seen as being an
0: interfering regulator. Okay, You don't want to be seen as the driver. You want to be seen as the response to the reality out there. And so there's there's inevitably a delay between the observed and manifest conditions out there and the action that's required to cure it. And so you have these delays in trade action. And then the need becomes increasingly obvious, and you have to overplay your hand. And that just, that's how it works. It's, it's worked like that forever. It's going to continue working like that because of greed and fear, right? The two ultimate primal drivers of all things markets. And that's what happens. You offer us money for free, we'll take as much as we can when it comes to repaying it back. And then you go and make it expensive. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> not good. fair, right? Yeah. We just, Fannibal, you know, I mean, we never learn. We never, ever learn. Okay, it's us ordinary people.
1: Well, except that in this case, there is one marked difference, and that is that this emergency rescue deal that JP Morgan has done, it's clear that the banking community as a whole has learned how to jump when there's even the smallest crisis. I mean, this is not a very big bank in American terms. And boom, one weekend, it's fine. And the next weekend, it's bought by another bank. Well, same with UBS and Credit Suisse, and I'm sure there'll be one or two more to come. These
0: should be bargains for the buyer and relief for the regulator. There's a sum of that here like never before. I mean, the regulator doesn't want to have a banking crisis, and the banks want to make a quick buck by buying these things. I mean, the shareholder value goes to zero, and so you're essentially buying all the goodwill and equity for the face value of the balance sheet, which yeah. is way below where banks typically trade. So that, that's the double. Now, the trouble with that is you have an even greater concentration emerging, okay, which means you have even less innovation in banks as we get to a narrower and narrower definition of acceptable credit risk. Yeah. And so what I think ultimately happens is that banks get disintermediated and capital flows start happening outside of the banking system. And those have all sorts of opportunities and risks of their own because we cannot end up with kind of one bank or five banks that are price makers instead of price takers where there's no competition. And that
1: kind of is where we're tending towards. And you know, and that, I don't think, is a good thing. What do you think the situation of South African banks is? You know, when I look at South African banks, I think they're clearly liking a higher interest interest rate environment Uh, they look solid to me maybe there's some banks out there that we're not necessarily watching too carefully that are at risk what do you think
0: yeah well we learned way back when in exchange control how to you know concentrate banking power in in the right places okay so we're very good at building loggers okay and so i think our banks from everything that's fed to us are pretty solid now what does that mean in our economy We need innovative financial solutions. Our banks in the main, and I'll get into trouble for this, but in the main are not out there looking for innovative banking solutions because they're making a damn good living out of good old-fashioned secured lending, okay? And that's good, and that's their place. And again, I say we will need to reinvent the funding models to have blended capital funding solutions for what in South Africa's case is an economy that needs innovative, clever, appropriate funding across very different economic models and very different demographics and very different LSM profiles. I mean, we are the ultimate, as you all know, diverse, unequal financial society. That, in order to solve it, does not require stable, safe banks. It requires, in addition to them, some blended sources of capital that cross the divide. So we've got interesting times ahead. But are, but are we safe? Yeah, I think we're safe. But who's we? Yes. you know, We're safe because we're not financing our population. That's why we're safe. Yes. We're safe because the banks aren't taking risk. I'm not saying they should. But the reason we're safe is the same reason why we have a significantly divided economic equation for South Africans. And, and that solution is far more dangerous than a bank failure or the absence of that solution.
1: Well, oh, that's very interesting. I mean, there is one related issue that interests me, and that has to do with the dollar as the sort of default international currency. You know, for, yeah. for for ages, people have been talking about alternatives to the dollar. So, you know, I had a little look at this over the weekend, and it is interesting to me. The sort of key statistic is the U.S. economy is about 25 percent of the global GDP, but it's about 65 percent of global foreign exchange reserves. It's about half of all trade is invoicing happens in dollars. About 45% of global debt is held in dollars, and about half the cross border loans are made in dollars. So it is, the dollar is part of the international economy out of proportion to the size of the US economy in the global context. The reason this is all very interesting is because of the BRICS conference, which is happening in August. And, you know, quite apart from the fact that Putin is, you know, probably going to arrive here and the problem with the International Criminal Court, there is also going to be this very big discussion about trying to find an uh, alternative to dollar dominance amongst BRICS members. Do you think that the dollar as the sort of international default currency is an unfair advantage for the US or is it actually a good thing because we have this huge liquid underpin for global trade? I mean, I guess the easy answer is it's a bit of both, isn't it? Well, it's not an unfair advantage. It's an earned advantage. Okay, the
0: dollar is the, as you call it, default currency, not by mistake or by a popular vote. It's the default currency because it's seen To have its value predominantly determined by free market forces, okay, with Fed intervention on either side of, if you like, an acceptable lane in which it travels. Imagine if you had instead a currency that was determined by the rule of a dictator or by the aggregate performance of economies outside of the mainstream, where mispricing is rife, let alone corruption and things of that nature. So. The dollar performs the function it does because you pretty much know that no one can overnight change the price of the dollar or certainly not do so quietly without a Fed action, which has got an interest rate implication, which has got a yield implication, which changes value. So no one can wake up in the morning and change the dollar without changing some economic variable that affects it. And so we all need a place to go where we feel there's a representation of value not in overly interfered with. That's the dollar. Yeah. Okay. If you wanted to start talking about other currencies, those two characteristics are not as prevalent. And so I think we're with the dollar for a while. They've got their own issues to deal with like the debt ceiling and like the aging leadership and all of those kinds of other things and the wars that they like being in and so on. But they're the best of a bunch by a long, long way. And until We find another currency in which we can all believe.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that what's really freaked out the BRICS countries actually has to do with the Ukraine war. Because as soon as the the invasion of Ukraine happened, the, the West, Europe and America suddenly decided that around about 300 billion in Russian foreign exchange reserves was no longer exchange and was no longer a reserve. (laughs) <laughs> so you know I, th- I think this has been a huge wake-up call for the brics nations and i said in my column that i think the kind of global r- response by you know brics leaders to that was what they can do that yeah exactly <laughs> you can't have that happen <laughs> yes no, no no that's right but as you say i think that the big problem is that brics countries you know at least three i'm not a, i don't exactly know what happens in russia but China, Brazil, and South Africa all have exchange controls, right? So, in order to make your currency an alternative to the dollar, the one thing you've got to do is have a free-floating currency. Now, China is the, you know, the obvious alternative, and they they've got a currency board, right? So, in a nutshell, we cannot have a currency of reference, the
0: price of which is determined predominantly by factors other than supply and demand. Okay. When we stray from the fundamental rule of economic value, yeah. then we go into a place where no one can trust. And, until, you know, and, and I don't see that happening in our lifetime, quite frankly. So you can't wake up in the morning and instead of watching and tracking the dollar through the night, you wake up in the morning and you've got the whatever it is, yarn, and it's moved by 20% under dictate. Okay, you can't even yes. contemplate such a trading environment. Okay, you've got goods on the water whose value has just changed and ruined someone and made someone else. So the the, ref, the currency of reference is an earned place, which will be lost almost immediately if the fundamental laws of economics are not adhered to.
1: All righty, let's move on. Just another sort of quick question. When you were at university, Mark, did did your vice-chancellor have to have a bodyguard? I mean, did your vice-chancellor... Oh, man, no.
0: (laughs) No, the answer is no, no, no. And, And nor did anyone else, quite honestly, that I ever knew. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a great sadness when someone in an institute of higher learning is under threat. You know, we've got gangsters stealing things and robbing things that... And we've got people that are high profile government officials and so on that might need protection for in the interests of the country and so on. But when a professor needs a bodyguard, we've lost it, man, we've lost it, you know, and all of this is because of the free flow of discovered information, and so perhaps it was true that we didn't see everything before, or perhaps it was it is true that there wasn't that much evil about. I'm not sure which, but I would hate to think of a day where I felt it necessary to protect my life by virtue of just being who I am, which is an honest citizen of South Africa. It's yeah. it's, a, it's a benchmark which I, I find horrible to contemplate. I, I saw a tweet about how all of the top CEOs and all the business people inside are having their cars all armoured up against gunshots and so on. That... Yeah. That has got to stop today. That has got to be made unnecessary today because that is the manifestation of everything that 's gone wrong is that we resort to primal violence in the absence of leadership in the absence of coherent guidance and policy and that 's the true end
1: of the game. just to recap what happened, the news is that police in the eastern Cape have confirmed reports that the, the second bodyguard for the Fort Hare University Vice-Chancellor, Professor Sakela Bulungu, has been killed in a hit-and-run car crash. They're still collecting the information, but, I mean, in this case, two of the bodyguards have been killed. I mean, the fact that the Vice-Chancellor had to have a bodyguard is one thing, but now the bodyguards themselves are, are under attack. It's a f- feature of modern South Africa, and it is really it's appalling, sort of horrible... The other thing that I was reading about today was about the old Fish River Resort. This was the one built by Sol Kozner. This is in the Guy? There's actually a sort of humorous part to this because what happened was that the resort was taken over. It was, it was a big fight about the, who owned the land. It was eventually given to a community trust. The Department of Agric put in 84 million bucks. Somebody bought it. And had a plan to use it for television production. And the idea was to have, you know, these reality TV shows where everybody is sort of clustered in a place for a certain amount of time, you know, and they, they apparently they had one going and there were 48 members of British film crew were in the process of producing a reality show. And then the film crew was evicted by the community group who had just sort of marched onto the property and took over. I mean, talk about reality. That is real.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I hope someone was filming that because you could replace whatever their series was with this one,
1: you know. Yes, no, 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 it sounds sounds like great television.
0: Yeah, don't come (laughs) film on our land. But I mean, talking about great television and VIP protection and so on,
1: We've got a coronation coming down the road. So, Sorry, I didn't. I didn't know about that. Who? Who? Who is that? Yeah. <laughs> Charles, man, in South Africa, in South... <laughs> he,
0: No, no. He, he's waited long enough. Eh? if I was him, I'd go like, "Mom, give her a chance." Hey, please, I would have spoken to her long ago. Come on, man, <laughs> give me a chance. Anyway, so he's now got his chance, and I must say, I'm not a royalist. Okay, let me put my cards down. But I must say that the Queen, may she rest in peace. Did a great job as a head of state, as best I can, you know, understand it. And she was a huge economic asset. Now, there's the time for all of that come and gone? And I think the test has been put out. You know, the king has asked people to pledge allegiance to the king. Now, I wouldn't be prepared to do that. Okay. I wouldn't be prepared. Pledge allegiance to someone who I haven't even met yet. Okay. And who
1: doesn't have a chin. If he had a chin, it would be one thing, but he doesn't have a chin. And he doesn't. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it would be one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't even know the guy. Okay. I've never been, I've never been you know, for a walk with him, even. And so I could pledge allegiance to my country, right? to the flag, if you will. Okay. In the right conditions under the right government. Right. Because that's a pledge to the people that I'm part of. But I'm not sure I could ever bow or pledge allegiance to a single individual who is ordained by birth. into. I don't subscribe to
1: birthright, basically. I was listening to a debate that they were having by one of these kind of debating online groups. And it was really fascinating because going into the debate, my instinct would be, well, of course, they've got to have a monarchy in the UK. It's such a part of the sort of culture of the society. And, and in some ways, it, the idea is that the monarch is the country, right? So you are, yeah. in, a, in a sense, pledging allegiance to the head of state rather than to yeah. the country itself, but it's, it sort of comes to the same thing. But you know, as the debate continued, I started feeling more and more sympathetic to the Republican side. So that big argument, the big statistical argument in favor of the royalty was this. If you take the top twenty most stable countries in the world, ten of them are monarchies, right? That's what the the monarchist argument.
0: And the other ten are dictatorships.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. The other ten are democracy. <laughs> per the the guy who was arguing in favour of the republic, he said, "Well, you know, you could argue it the other way around. It's possible that because countries are stable." It means that they are the most likely countries to extend the functionality of their royal...
0: Yeah, so which came first? Yes, exactly, yeah. The country or the king, which came first? I mean, it puts the chicken and egg into perspective, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. stability or royalty. There's a sort of a ceremonial likeness of the royal family from time to time that changes. And it's definitely an asset for the brand in England, in my outsider's view. But whether it should actually have powers of authority of any consequence is the real debate, you know. And I would argue not. I would argue that, you know, we cannot in these modern times bow to someone who happened to be the the offspring of someone who was ordained king by I don't know who so many hundreds of years <laughs> and things ago. You know, they say the apple, Tim, doesn't fall far from the tree. But I've seen some apple trees growing on peaks of mountains okay right where the apple rolls a hell of a long way before
1: it comes to (laughs) Stancil. and that's the risk you take with believing in birthright i'm not a subscriber no 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 we forget that king charles as he will be you know this weekend is also the head of state of is it 14 other countries it is amazing including australia and canada you know so it's For a lot of the world, this is actually not a trivial thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with you. I don't, I'm so glad that we are a republic. You want your representatives of the state, uh, whether they're representing government or representing the state as a whole, you want them changeable and you want them responsible. So, you know, it's very nice for the Brits. I think it'll be, they'll have a lot of fun. There'll be, you know, carriages and gold and all of that sort of stuff. So, not for me. Thank you very much. Alrighty righty, Mark. Thanks very much. That was a very interesting chat. We've overshot our time a bit, but we're so keen to get back to work. We've blabbed yeah. on a bit.
0: Well, <laughs> look forward to you guys. We get nice responses and encouragement and criticism. Keep it up. We, we enjoy that. See you next week. Thanks, man. Cheers, cheers. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The, the biggest podcast network, network on, on the continent, for sales inquiries, please, please contact, contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.